I'll take your Bibles and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All these songs today really dovetailed well with the passage we're uh, looking at together in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 as uh, Paul concludes uh, his uh, great chapter on the resurrection, beginning with the resurrection of Christ and then moving to the resurrection of the believer. So we're looking together at these verses starting with verse 50 today. Uh, most of you have probably heard of the uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the Aka Indians. Uh, back in 1956, they had gone to give the gospel to this tribal people in Ecuador. And uh, in the process, they were all murdered, five, five missionaries at that time. Were, were, their lives were taken. And most of us know that story. Uh, some of you know also that uh, at least two of the wives went back into the, to the villages, uh, Ray, uh, Elizabeth Elliott and Rachel Saint. And they went back and ministered to these people back in, in those jungles for many, many years. And the Lord used them. Uh, there's an incident that Rachel Saint uh, tells us about in which some of the, uh, uh, one, of, one of the men who had come to Christ, one of the, the natives that had come to Christ and had really been changed by the power of God, uh, died from a snake bite. And he had actually was out in the, in the, in the jungle. And uh, when the message got back to the village that he had died, uh, the, uh, the Aka wail and cry that it was very typical of that type of people, the tribal people, went out very loud and crazy, wild. And Rachel Saint th was thinking to herself how sad that after all the ministry of the gospel and the proclamation of these people being saved, many of them, that they were still behaving that way when it came to death. And it kind of bothered her. And then she heard the wife of this man who had died. And she wasn't crying out in despair as uh, she would have done just a few months or years before, her, her words were these, my husband is in heaven, my husband trusted Christ. My husband is in heaven, my husband trusted Christ. The uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And these Indians who had never heard of Christ some years earlier had now come to the Lord Jesus and that had changed everything, including their view of death. It has been said that uh, what we fear reveals what we worship. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Nothing is feared more than death. Uh, people will do almost anything to live a little longer, even if they're in great uh, misery and pain sometimes. Death is like a great bully. It just kind of runs through our societies, our cultures, our world, uh, bringing fear and threatening on every level. It's like a, like a bully. Somebody has said that, that uh, they always appreciated when the, the playground bully was uh, met by somebody tougher than him and beat him up. Uh, uh, movies and TV shows all the time uh, are about the, the bad guy getting his in the end. Uh, we like to see the bully taken care of, don't we? Well, the ultimate bully is death. Death is bullied. Death has brought fear. Death has brought uh, anxiety into the lives of people all over the world for centuries. And yet death is going to be defeated. That great bully is going to, to meet his match and more so. Today we're going to look at the message starting with verse 50 to the end of the chapter in a very simple outline. I want to look at death cheated and death dying or, or defeated and finally at the final application in the marvelous last verse of this chapter. So let's start with death cheated. Verse 50 says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul is finalizing what he's already been saying in the earlier verses that we looked at last time. And uh, he is now finalizing that and simply saying that it is necessary that we have a resurrected, imperishable, immortal body 
to go into eternity because our bodies like we have now could never handle even a moment of being in the presence of God and living throughout eternity. We need that new body. But there's one question Paul has not yet addressed, and that's the question he's going to look at now, and that is what happens to us who are still alive when he comes? Uh, we know what happens to those who have died. They'll be resurrected and given new and glorified resurrected bodies. But what happens to those of us who are still behind? And I think it's been the, goal, the, the ambition of every Christian throughout the centuries that they be here when Christ returns. Uh, we often pray, Lord, today, Maranatha, come now. Come right now. How, how glorious that would be if, the, if he would come even at this moment. And most Christians throughout the ages would love to be there alive when he comes. But most have not been, and we don't know when he's coming back. But, so what happens to the, the saints who are still alive when Christ returns? Well, Paul's going to tell us here. He gives a fourfold answer to that question. First of all, in verse 51, he says that, uh, that some Christians will be alive when he comes. So verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. So uh, we, we, some of us will be alive. Some Christians will be alive when he comes. So I'm going to use my, my joke here on this verse for one last time in the history of humanity. Uh, for those that have heard it uh, so many times, you can uh, throw things at me. Those who have never heard it might think it's funny. But there's actually churches that have this sign, this verse, in the nursery. They'll not all sleep, but they'll all be changed. Okay? <laughs> Apparently some of you have never heard it, so... So put that, tuck that away. I'll try never to use it again. It's, but I actually have seen that in a church or two. It's kind of weird. But uh, that's not our motto in the nursery. But uh, it, it does work out sometimes. Uh, secondly, all Christians will have changed bodies when Christ comes. Verse 51, we read. Look at verse 2. Well, at the end of verse 51, and we'll all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will rise imperishable, and we will be changed. And so all of us will be changed when he comes back, and we'll receive the same kind of glorified, resurrected body that the, that the believer who has passed away will receive. It'll be the same body. Um, this will take place, then he says, at the last trumpet, which is the trumpet was used to call people to assembly. And so he's talking about that time, I believe this trumpet he's speaking of here, is when the Lord calls all of his saints, those who, all believers, all Christians who have died from the, the moment of the church beginning to the end, until he comes back, all those who have died and those who are still alive will be assembled together at that trumpet call, and we will all go, uh, have changed bodies and go to be with him. Thirdly, the change will be instantaneous both the living and the, for both dead and living believers. He says, in a moment, uh, he says, this will happen. The word moment here is actually uh, the Greek word from which we get our word Adam. And there's a prefix before it that is a negative. So, so the word could be translated literally uh, something that cannot be cut. It's going to be so quickly that uh, the time moment, the moment of time cannot be cut. That's how quickly it's going to be. And it's also going to be in a twinkling of an eye. And I've heard some silly discussions about how quick a twinkling of an eye is and people measuring all that out and, and giving a lot of stuff that's probably unnecessary. I'll, I'll tell you what a twinkling of an eye is. You want to know? It's that moment between when the light turns green and the guy behind you honks. That, that's a twinkling. And so we're going to be very quickly taken up to be with him. 
forth. The change will be from one body to another. Verse 52 we saw at the end of that verse. As he says we'll be raised imperishable. We'll be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. And so the change will be from one body to the next. Go over a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4. Where uh, we have a, maybe a little clearer picture of what happens in that verse. Paul, Paul says, therefore, indeed, we'll, while we're in this tent, by this tent he means our body. While we're in this body, we groan. So our bodies, uh, we, at times we groan, don't we? And uh, we struggle. Some people said amen on that one, right? Being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So the picture is sort of this way, the, at the, when we're changed, that we will put on a new body that will sort of swallow up the old body, uh, but will not replace, not, it will, but we'll be the same people. Uh, we will still be the same person, but we will have been changed both physically and spiritually at that moment. We're swallowed up in life. Physically, we will have this new resurrected body we've been talking about. And spiritually, we'll have a new, uh, our purified, glorified nature in which we'll no longer sin nor have any temptation or desire to sin. Both physically and spiritually, the Christian anticipates with great hope that particular event, don't we? Think of the, think of the bodily. Uh, for those of, of those, especially elderly saints as we grow older, and our bodies begin to wear down. We have pains and stuff we never even thought or imagined when we were young. When our whole social life is wrapped around going to the doctor. Uh, and some of you know what that is all about. We, the older we get, the more infirmed we get, the more problems we have, the more we look forward to that new, resurrected, glorified body that he's going to give us. And then secondly, the spiritual. You know, I think sometimes when we're young, once again, we think, well, the day will come when I'll become so spiritual, so mature in Christ that I, I won't even be tempted by sin. Uh, ask any older saint about that, and you will find very quickly that's not the case. So we, hopefully we grow, we mature, uh, we, we overcome various things of the past, but we never get to the place when sin doesn't, isn't our great enemy, isn't tempting us, isn't trying to lead us astray, and sometimes succeeds. We never get there. You ask a saint near death, one who walked with Christ for many, many years, what they're looking forward to, and often they'll tell you, I look forward to that day when I see Jesus Christ face to face and I no longer have any desire to do anything but please him completely. That's coming, folks. That's yours. If you know Christ, physically and spiritually, we're going to be changed. I want to back up for a moment to verse 51, though. I want us to look at the word mystery. Uh, Most of you know by now, because we say this quite often, that a mystery in Scripture is a secret uh, that uh, is revealed in the, in the New Testament, things we would not know if God did not reveal them to us. So picture a vault of some kind in a bank somewhere, uh, that uh, behind that vault is great treasures, but, there is, but, but it's locked. There's a combination for that vault, and until that combination is given, until we know what that is, we'll never be able to see the treasures that are behind it. The Lord has great treasures for His people. And he calls them mysteries. He reveals some of those mysteries to you and I. And in the New Testament, he reveals a number of them. Here is the mystery of the resurrection. But I don't want to jump into that quite yet. I want to, I want to back up and, and talk to you a little bit about what the Old Testament saints knew. 
So the Old Testament saints lived in the shadows compared to the sunlight that the Lord has revealed in the New Testament. There are lots of things they did not know very clearly, but they had inklings of them, and that includes the resurrection of the body. What did the Old Testament saints actually know about the future life? I want to talk to you about a few things. If you want to follow me in the Bible, for, that's good. Go to John chapter 11. If you uh, think I'm going too fast, just listen up. Maybe jot down the passages. You can go to them later. But John chapter 11, Jesus is at the graveside of Lazarus. He's talking to Martha. And in verse 23, he tells Martha that your brother will rise again. And in verse 24, Martha said, Lord, if you, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says here, and, and Jesus then said he will rise again. And then she says in verse 24, she said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now she knew that. Now she didn't know the second part, which I'll come back later, but while we're here, we'll look at it. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That she did not know. But she knew that there would be a resurrection at the last time. Now how did she know that? There's from the Old Testament revelation. Go to Daniel chapter 12 with me. And as you do, uh, you might jot down as well, there's some other passages that point this direction. For example, Psalm 1610 uh, is a verse of scripture that, is, that points this direction. Isaiah 2619 as well. But the clearest passage in all the Old Testament concerning the, the future resurrection of, of people is Daniel 12 verses 1 and 2. And it speaks of a general resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Look at verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So they had an idea, they had some insight to the fact there would be a resurrection at the end, a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous would go on to reward, the unrighteous would go on to condemnation. So they knew that much. And Jesus affirms this, by the way, and you might want to jot this down, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he affirms that, uh, what, exactly what is said in Daniel. But we won't look at all those to save time. So they knew there would be a resurrection at the end of time, at a certain point in time. What else did they know? They knew also that the physical body in the resurrection, I want you to go to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Job is in many ways a very depressing book, uh, a difficult book in some ways, except for at the very end, a lot of it is uh, pretty down, I think. But right in the middle, there's this fabulous jewel that, uh, that we appreciate and love and turn to often. Chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. In the midst of Job's suffering and loss, he, uh, he still had this hope in him. He knew something. How he knew this, I don't know. But he knew this back long before most of the scriptures, if any of it, was even written. It says in verse 25, For as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth. He's coming back. He's going to stand on the earth. 
Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. He is convinced that one day he will, he will, the Lord will come back, and he'll take his stand with the Lord. And even after he has died and his skin has, has decomposed, he will in his flesh see God. He knows there is going to be a body that we would have in the future. What that body would be like, he didn't know. That's the mystery Paul's unraveling in the New Testament. One more thing I'd mention, go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, they knew there'd be a res that there'd be a, a resurrection at the end. They knew that there'd be a physical body at the end. In Hebrews chapter 11, they also knew that they would have a heavenly home. That the Lord is preparing for them a heavenly home. Chapter 11, verse 10, we're talking about the patriarchs here, especially Abraham. And it says, verse, not start with verse 9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What a precious verse. Look at verse 16 as well. But as it is... They desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham knew that their God had prepared a place for him. He wasn't just going to be there in a spiritual sense. He would be there bodily, and he'd be in a home, a city, a country that God had prepared for him. So going back to our passage in 1 Corinthians, we know this then that the, uh, the Old Testament saints had certain insights, but they didn't know a lot of things yet. Matter of fact, uh, I'm going to take a slight tangent here. There's 11 mysteries it revealed in the New Testament that the Old Testament saints did not understand. 11 of them. And I'm going to just mention five. I preached on all these before. It takes several sermons to preach through them. But uh, I want to mention five very quickly, tell you where they're found, and you could do a wonderful Bible study on your own by looking at these. The first one is the mystery of lawlessness found in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. The world is in the process of rebellion against God. You know that. And they're following a plan mapped out by the devil himself, but they don't know that. And the world, is, and as a result, is in a mess. Why? Because of the mystery of lawlessness that is revealed in that passage. Secondly, the mystery of God's will. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, the mystery of God's will. The mystery of lawlessness tells us where the world is headed and why it's in a mess. The mystery of God's will tells us that God has a great plan and his great plan will ultimately unite everything in Christ and the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness will be defeated. Then there's the mystery of godliness which is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. This is God's answer here and now to the mystery of of lawlessness. What is this mystery? Is God's answer to man's dilemma, to his rebellion, to his sin, to the, his main problem with himself, which is Christ. The mystery of godliness points straight to Jesus Christ. The mystery of Christ is a fourth one. Ephesians verses three, chapter three, verses two to six is the, is the mystery of the church, not revealed in the Old Testament. The church would be composed of Jew and Gentile who would come together, united together in one body to serve the Lord and, to, and that would be his, his main line of offense 
in this world today to take out his truth and his gospel and to minister to, to people. And then finally, the mystery of God's wisdom. Mystery of God's wisdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Why is it with all of our wisdom and all of our knowledge and all of our technology, why is it we can't figure out life? Why is it that people are confused? The great brilliant atheist H.H.G. H. Wells entitled his last book, Mind at the End of Its Tether. In other words, this brilliant man who has studied life all of his life came to the end of life and said, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know. I don't get it. Why is that? Because life, listen, life does not make sense if you leave God out of the equation. Life only makes sense when we see life through the lens of Scripture that God has revealed to us. And that is why after we're finished with 1 Corinthians in a couple of weeks, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes for a while because there's no book in the Bible that so unravels this issue that the book of Ecclesiastes that tells us how, how life is a puzzle that cannot be solved unless you are linked with God himself and see life through his eyes. I'm looking forward to looking at Ecclesiastes with you. But the mystery of, uh, of the bodily resurrection is the one that Paul is talking about in this passage. The previous saints now knew the outlines of the resurrection. But Paul is coloring in the pages, the pictures. And here we have this whole chapter on that subject. And so the death is, is cheated of its prize. What's its prize? Us. And death is cheated of that prize because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of us. Secondly, death is defeated in verses 54 to 57. But I'm going to start with verse 26. Death defeated. The last enemy will be abolished is death. Now, now this is a very important verse because there are some today who try to make death our friend. They, they think that uh, they go to uh, the death of a loved one, a funeral, and this, this individual who knew Christ, they, they make it like it should be a happy occasion. Uh, we should re rejoice. They're with Christ. And of course, it's good for them. Uh, but there's nothing in Scripture that talks like that. Death is our enemy, folks. It's the last enemy that will be destroyed. Uh, we sorrow, not as those who have no hope, but we sorrow because death is not our friend. It's our enemy. Those who have passed on, we're going to miss them. Our link to, their, to our past with them is gone. Uh, their, their presence is gone. Our fellowship with them is gone. That love, it, it cannot be experienced directly any longer. Hardships may result in certain family situations. Death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. Through the Lord's mercy, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope, but we still sorrow. Please don't confuse that. We sorrow. We hurt when we lose a loved one. And most people in this room have probably lost someone very precious to them. Some of you that are a little bit older might remember a, a very well-known Christian about uh, several decades ago by the name of Joseph Bailey. He was a pioneer in Christian TV, a publisher, uh, working for different publishing houses, an author, very famous at the time. Uh, Bailey, his best book, I think, 
was a book that he wrote in the midst of sorrow. He had lost, the name of the book, by the way, is The Last, the last Thing We Talk About. And for those that are hurting over the death of a, lost, of a loved one, uh, you might want to get that book. I'm sure it's still available. The, the Last Thing We Talk About. Joseph Bailey, for all of his success, for all he had accomplished, for all his fame, had the greatest sorrow that is probably possible. He lost three sons before they grew up. One in early infancy, just a few, about two or three weeks after, after the birth. A six-year-old who died of leukemia, and an 18-year-old who died in a skiing accident. Three sons that he grieved over. And he wrote this book to talk not only about his own grief, and about the teaching of scripture, but to, to talk to us about how to help others at grief. A little section I'd like to read to you from, it, from his book has been helpful to me in my ministry to, the, to those that sorrow, and maybe it will be helpful to you. He says this, sensitivity in the presence of grief should usually make us more silent, more listening. Now think about this in the context of helping others who grieve. I'm sorry is honest. I know how you feel is usually not, even though you may have experienced the same thing. If the person feels that you can understand, he'll let you know. Then you may want to share your own honest, not prettied up feelings and your own personal aftermath with death. Don't try to prove anything to a survivor. An arm around the shoulder, a firm grip of the hand, a kiss. They, these are the proofs of grief, grief needs, not logical reasoning. Then he said this in one of his own experiences. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish that he would go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I had something to say, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. I'd like for you to talk about that in your small groups today as to how you would like to be comforted, how you can comfort other people as well in that time of grief. Death is our enemy. It causes great grief to the, even the most holy, the most godly of Christians when we lose someone that we love. But the sting of death has been pulled. And so Paul moves on in verses 54 and 55 and when, the, and when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the day is coming when death will be defeated. We will no longer be feared. Uh, when we will sing with the apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When are we going to sing that song? We're going to sing that song when sin and the law which condemns us have been done away with. When there's no longer any sin, there'll be no longer any death. For death is the consequences of sin. In verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Sin will no longer have power over us at the resurrection. Law will no longer be needed because we will want 
with all of our hearts and souls to serve him and to live for him. We will not lead a list of do's and don'ts. And so in verse 57, he says this, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is our enemy, but death will be defeated. Death is our enemy, but there's victory in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, fear death. Because following death, you will face Almighty God. And he will condemn you to hell forever. But if you know Jesus Christ, the stinger has been pulled. Death simply ushers us into his presence. And we have that victory at that time. We get a taste of that, however, right now. When we find that death actually dies in two stages. Okay, go, to, go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Stage 1. Hebrew dies, uh, I mean, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, death dies in two stages. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It loses its power over God's people. That's first stage. 2.14 says this in Hebrews. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He's rendered powerless the devil who has that power. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death brings fear because we don't know the consequences. We don't know what comes after that. But in Christ, death frees us, or God, Christ frees us from the fear of death that has once held us in bondage. Death's power has been eliminated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promise to us. Death's power, first stage, is gone. It cannot cause us to fear any longer if we know Christ. It does cause us to grieve. It causes us to hurt. We hate it. We'll fight it. But we need not fear it. Because it's been because of the power of the resurrection of Christ. Stage two is back in our passage. Stage two is death is abolished. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 54 to 57. It has lost its sting. Paul taunts it, so to speak, here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, your sting? The stinger's gone. The day comes when death has no sting whatsoever. And that day will be when we're with him forever. A partial victory now will be a complete victory in Christ at his coming. There's one more thing I want to talk about, however, and that's verse 58, and that's the application. What a verse of scripture. What a verse of scripture. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This verse has been used by God's people throughout the centuries as a verse of comfort, a verse of hope, a verse to, that keeps us going, serving Christ. In all circumstances, in all contexts, people have turned to this passage of Scripture. You need this verse. You need to memorize this verse. You need to go to this verse once in a while. On those days when you're down and you're not sure you're accomplishing anything with your life, on those days when, when things look hopeless, when the pressures of life have come in on you, 
and, and you look back over 10, 15, 20, 50 years of, of being a Christian and, and you're not real sure anything has been accomplished in your life, you need this verse. You would be absolutely amazed if you would set in on some of the conversations I have and, and others like myself have with pastors and missionaries and full-time Christian workers who you probably think, oh, they, they served their whole life for Christ. And, that, and surely they've got a whole resume of things they've done for him that they're so excited about. You'd be amazed how many feel down about their accomplishments, that they've done nothing or very little for Christ, that they wonder if they even should have done what they've done. So for every, every status, from those who spent their whole life in, in, in full-time ministry of some kind to those that have done computer work or carpentry or whatever, this verse stands out. It brings great hope, and it brings a wonderful, wonderful promise. It's one of the great motivators of the Christian life and the Christian service. But the application here, the context, is in the context of the resurrection of ourselves. He says, therefore, he says, therefore, for a reason. He wants us to look back over the last 57 verses. And know that what he wants to promise us now is not based on some, uh, something out of the air, some whim, some hope. It's based, first of all, on the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first several verses. That Christ came, died for us, resurrected from the dead, is alive today, is coming back. And that we can know him by faith alone if we'll turn to him. It's based on the proof of the resurrection in the middle verses of this chapter. And it's based upon all he said about who we will be in the future, our own personal resurrection, and our time with the Lord forever. On the basis of all of that, he says, therefore. Therefore. Then he goes on with his application. Here's the takeaway. How, and here's the question you might have. You might say, Gary, good sermon. Way to go. Now I know more about the resurrection than I knew before. Good stuff. What's for lunch? What does it mean to you? What does it matter to you this afternoon? I've always said. Well, what does it matter to you next week, next Monday, next, next month, for all that we've seen in 1 Corinthians 15? What's the takeaway? The takeaway is it should change your life. And here's how it should change your life. He says... First of all, that it should make you steadfast, stable, unmovable, stability. I think there's three areas of stability he has in mind here. First of all, in the faith, stability in your faith. We hear a lot right now, and if you, if you follow certain circles, about the deconstruction of many Christians, people who have walked with the Lord, had ministries, whatever, who have now turned away from Christ. They've deconstructed. And they now no longer believe in the Lord. And many of them actively oppose him in their writings and their ministries, their lives. Deconstruction. But when you believe in what the Lord has taught us here, it gives you stability. Does your faith ever struggle? You ever have any doubts? You ever wake up someday and they've gone going through some hard times and just kind of wonder about all this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the absolute fact of that, the promise that our Almighty God has given us of our resurrection gives us stability even in times of doubt. It gives us stability in times of 
temptation, we're not only steadfast, but we're immovable. We face temptation. We might face persecution. We face peer pressure. But we're given stability. We're immovable because we know the end game. We know what the Lord has planned. We know where we're going. We know of his great gift. And that makes us immovable. We're not shaken about by every wind of doctrine. We're not pushed about by every individual who wants to take us in a wrong direction. We're not tempted by the, by the sinful act, attitudes and, at, and things that people want us to get involved in because we're immovable, because we're anchored in Christ and what he has planned for us. And then we're stable in the resurrection. We believe in what he has to say. That death comes, but it's not the end. We're resurrected with him. So it gives stability in a very unstable world. Secondly, it leads to abounding service, he says. Steadfast, immovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The word abounding means abundant or overflowing. The Christian who realizes that Christ, what Christ has done for this, for them, and will yet do for us, will always be excited about any opportunity he gives us to serve him. You can tell how grateful a Christian is by how, how they want to serve him with their lives. And I want to mention here, this isn't just talking about direct ministry. I think, I think this needs to be said. Uh, you say, well, yeah, I understand that. You know, you're witnessing to somebody or you're teaching the Bible or you're discipling or you're doing something like that. That's direct ministry. And I can see why that's talking about. But you know, most of you don't live in that world. Most of you go to a secular job all day long or school. You're spending all day doing other things. Are you fulfilling this passage? You are if you're living to the glory of Christ. He tells us to do all things for the glory of Christ. All things for him. And if we're living that kind of life, a life where our whole life is, is lived for his glory, then you could be hammering in nails. You could be doing uh, software packages. You could be doing whatever you do. If you're doing it for the glory of Christ and magnifying Christ with your life, I believe you fulfill this passage. That doesn't mean we don't do direct things, such as telling people about Christ and discipling and teaching the word, all that. That's included, but it's not the only thing. You're always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, why is it that the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses work so hard for their faith? You ever thought about that? Two, two motivations. Duty and fear. You and I are not motivated by duty and fear. We're motivated by love and gratitude. Shouldn't our lives be better motivated by love and gratitude than fear and duty? Shouldn't that manifest itself in our life? There was a famous violinist years ago named Paganini. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he was well known. He had a beautiful and perfect instrument, a violin. And he, uh, when he died, he willed his violin to his hometown and was put in a museum with the proviso that it never, ever again be played. And this beautiful instrument that brought so much joy to so many people, as I understand it, sets in a, its case in a museum, riding away and worm-eaten, never used again. God didn't save us to put us in a museum piece. He didn't save us to keep us on a shelf somewhere. He saved us that we might be steadfast, immovable, always abounding to his glory in his work. And thirdly, we have overflowing confidence. 
he moves on and he says this, knowing that your toil in vain is not in vain in the Lord. Notice that word knowing. How do we know that our work is not in vain? Because he says so. Knowing his promise. You may not, honestly folks, you may not see the results of your life for him. You may not see the fruit of your ministry very well. You might, but you might not. You'll see some failures too along the way. But he says here, look, knowing that our toil for him, and the word toil is a very strong word, it's a hard thing, is not in vain in the Lord. You did not waste your life. You did not waste your life if you've lived for his glory. Be on the basis of his resurrection. Some of you may not know this, but David Livingston, perhaps the best known of all missionaries of modern time, when he went to Africa for his whole lifetime, 50-some years, spent his whole life ministering in Africa in places where Christ had never been named, and to our knowledge, had one convert. The greatest missionary, supposedly, at least the best known, in modern times, may have had one convert in 50 years. But he said this toward the end of his life, future missionaries will be rewarded by conversions for every sermon. We are their pioneers and their helpers. He had the perspective of this verse. He served Christ. He didn't know what would happen. He didn't see the results. But we know today that tens of millions of people in those very areas have now come to Christ because this, this man, the Lord, used to pioneer the way. Now that's unusual. That's not our, our story very often. But we have the same exact promise. We don't know what the Lord may be doing in our lives. We, we're blind to that, folks, honestly. Uh, even, even those that have served Christ most faithfully are often blinded to what they are accomplishing. But we know we have the promise of God that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. He is going to use your life for his glory if you live for his glory. What a verse, right? What a, what a takeaway. You and I can walk out of here excited about serving Christ because we know he's coming again. We know he's going to take us to be with himself. And we know that our service here and now is not in vain. I hope that gives you a wonderful day in the Lord. That's a commercial for my program. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this chapter, Lord, that we've enjoyed so much. What a blessing that is. Father, I pray for each of us here. Some here, Lord, that really have no concept of what I'm talking about because they don't know you. May this be the day that your spirit draws their hearts, open their eyes to truth, and come to you and place their faith in you for the forgiveness of their sins. How we pray for that. And we pray, Father, for those that do know you, and that's most of the people here, but they do know you, and perhaps they're discouraged today, Lord. Maybe they're going through sorrow. Maybe they're going through a deep time of distress. Maybe they're thinking about walking away from you. I don't know. But, Lord, may this wonderful passage give them hope and strength and, and promise from the Savior who died for us, who was resurrected for us, and who lives for us. We pray in his name. Amen.